This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And he said, again, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the gospel of the Lord. Good morning again and welcome to Church of the Cross. My name is Peter. I'm also one of the pastors here on staff. From one perspective, the old bluegrass song, Big Rock Candy Mountain, is kind of ridiculous. Written in 1928 by Harry McClintock, the song's lyrics describe this mythical land that's far away beyond the crystal fountains, where the sun shines every day on the cigarette trees and the lemonade springs, where there's a lake filled with stew and one of whiskey too, where the cops all have wooden legs, the bulldogs rubber teeth, where the jails are made of tin so you can walk right out again, and the hens The hens all lay soft, boiled eggs. The language is, of course, fantastical. It's humorous, even. But it's also human. I might like to go to Big Rock Candy Mountain. And in the world of the song, the description is given by a hobo, someone riding the rails with no place to lay their head. And it's written out of McClintock's own experience of homelessness and transience. And there's something universal captured in its ridiculous descriptions. This longing for safety and abundance, for goodness and rest. Are the feelings captured in the lyrics, the farmer's trees are full of fruit, the barn's full of hay, I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall and the wind don't blow. Really so different from our own longings for safety, security, provision. The English poet Gerard Manley Hopkins in his poem Heaven Haven writes, I have desired to go where springs do not fail, and I've asked to be where no storms come. These very different expressions both capture something human, something universal, something for which we all long a world set right. The Bible speaks of such a place, such a reality, in terms of God's reign, rule, or dominion. In the language of our gospel reading, it's the kingdom of God. This phrase that if you've spent any time in church, any time in Scripture, you'll likely have come across. It appears 32 times in the gospel of Luke, and throughout the gospel stories is often on Jesus' lips, serving as this overarching description of his understanding of what he's doing in his life. The kingdom of God is at the center. It's the animating principle behind Jesus' preaching, teaching, the miracles he performs. Jesus sees himself in some way as establishing God's kingdom, drawing others into it, naming and describing this reality. But what can we say of this kingdom? To use the language of Jesus' questions in Luke 13, to what can we compare it? What is the kingdom like? Here I suspect some of us might struggle 
We have the longings, the desires, the dreams of things, what they could be like, were they set right, were God to reign and rule. But our language, our imaginations fail. And this morning in the, the time we have together, I'd like to use Jesus' own questions here in our reading and his, his brief descriptions of the kingdom in terms of the mustard seed, the leaven, to make five observations about this kingdom. Five observations that may not provide a definitive answer for us, won't dispel the mystery, the challenge of it, but five observations that might fuel our imagination of God's kingdom, guide us in our longing after it, our participation. Before we jump in, let's, let's begin in prayer. Gracious God, we praise you for the gift of your spirit and the gift of the words that Luke wrote down for us. We praise you for the way your spirit inspired him to remember and write accurately down the words of Jesus. And we ask now that that same spirit would work in and among us, open our hearts and our minds to see the truth of what Jesus is speaking and to apprehend the reality of your kingdom, perhaps as never before. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Our first observation is simply the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is. Part of the fun of the song Big Rock Candy Mountain is its whimsical, even otherworldly quality. Is the singer just blowing smoke? Does such a place actually exist? But notice the language, the force of Jesus' words in verse 18. What is the kingdom of God like? Not what might the kingdom be like, not what is it going to be like even, but what is the kingdom like? For Jesus, the best and most brilliant human and teacher who ever lived, the kingdom of God, what one writer has described as God's total answer for humanity's total need, is not this fanciful, precarious thing, but a concrete and certain reality. In the same way, I might be able to tell you what Vancouver, Canada is like. Having lived there for some 26 years, it's glorious, Jesus speaks of the kingdom with the same certainty, the same conviction. Jesus speaks of this reality that meets our deepest longings for rest, for right relationship, for abundance, peace, and justice. In concrete terms, with conviction, the kingdom of God is now tangibly. I once worked with a cynical and stubborn man, perhaps the most cynical man I've ever met, who, who once regaled me with a tale of his one-time encounter with a group of Christians who I think were doing some kind of street evangelism. And as he walked by, I said, did you know Jesus has died for your sins? And he proudly told me how he stumped them, declaring, I never asked him to, and walking away. The obvious troll-like nature of such a comment aside, he was like an internet troll before there were inter the internet was, really. <laughs> that aside, what it seems to me he was expressing was this real sense that the gospel, as it was articulated to him, had no bearing on his life. The good news, they were declaring, had no purchase in his imagination. They might as well have been singing of a fanciful, far-off place. For many of us, the language of the gospel we may have been first introduced to is similarly, perhaps, detached from our everyday lives, concrete realities. It has little bearing on our lives, our, our longings, our human longings. It's detached, ethereal, it's far off. It's for when we die, 
But for Jesus and for those who first heard him, the reality of God's kingdom was this tangible, concrete, holistic thing. The tree Jesus describes, this visceral, physical thing, the shade, the nests, the place of rest and abundance, these are tangible realities. Many scholars see in the birds this picture of the nations, the peoples of the earth, together in peace, resting in God's kingdom. Science fiction writer H.G. Wells, upon reading the Gospels, commented, why here is the most radical proposal ever presented to the mind of man. The proposal is to replace the present world order with God's order, the kingdom of God. In these last 50 years or so, the scholar who has done more to capture this reality, make it accessible for the church, is a man named George Ladd. In books like The Presence of the Future, Ladd has explained, has recovered how the claim of the Gospels is that in Jesus' life, God setting the world right in justice, in peace, in flourishing, this longed-for future hope of the people of God that Israel had has been inaugurated. It's begun, such that this future hope can be experienced, known, tasted today in history. Jesus begins his ministry in the Gospel of Luke, quoting the prophet Isaiah, speaking of freedom of the oppressed, sight for the blind, good news for the poor, and the lowest rungs of the society. Concrete realities, and today, he says, today these longings are fulfilled. The kingdom of God is. Our second observation stands in paradoxical tension with this first one. The kingdom of God is, but second, the kingdom of God is not yet. Is not yet complete, is not yet in its fullness. This one I know many of you are painfully, tragically aware of. I think of that coworker, the most cynical man I may have ever met, and I wonder at what hurt what frustrated longings, what sadness and anger lies beneath that cynicism. The questions Jesus asks in verse 18 and then repeats again in verse 20, these are kind of standard ways that a rabbi, a teacher, would have introduced a certain topic. To what should I compare God's love, for example? But the questions also capture something of the ways the kingdom, the kingdom that is, is not an easily grasped reality. As Jesus says elsewhere, there's a mystery to the kingdom. You can't stand and say, this is the kingdom, and that's not, in the same way you might stand at the border between North and South Korea. There's this clear demarcation. The parable of the wheats and tares is about this mixed nature, this mystery. We use metaphor and we use simile well when we use them to describe Concepts are things not easily described in a straightforward manner. And Jesus' use of these brief parables here to describe the kingdom is necessary because there are ways in which the concrete reality of the kingdom of God eludes our apprehension, eludes our grasp. That Jesus has to speak of the kingdom in terms of mustard seeds and leaven speaks to the reality the kingdom is not something to which we can point to here and there even as it is in the midst of us, as Jesus says in Luke 17. 
In the morning of February 25th, 1986, Cori Aquino was inaugurated in Manila as the president of the Philippines. She was the first woman president in their history. And her inauguration was the culmination of the People Power Revolution, which put an end to the 21-year reign of Ferdinand Marcos, years characterized by rampant corruption and brutal human rights abuses. Her ascension was celebrated internationally as the most peaceful transition from authoritarian rule to democracy in history. Christians in the Philippines hailed Aquino's presidency as the work of God, the promise of justice and equity as a part of God's reign coming to fruition in their nation. Longings fulfilled, an increase in shalom, the way things ought to be. They were not wrong. God's kingdom, this concrete and tangible thing, is clearly connected in Scripture with the cause of justice and peace. God is concerned with just and good governance. Yet Aquino's administration functioned like any other in history and was itself marked by controversy, infighting, and scandal. Not to the same extent as what had preceded it, but certainly not what you might expect from the fullness of God's kingdom. This extends to our own lives, doesn't it? To the church, church that might grow in maturity and strength and health. But it's not the fullness of God's kingdom. Like, I know some of you, right? <laughs> Think of our own individual lives, the growth and maturity we experience. The sign of God, Christ taking root in our lives, us becoming more like him. Yet our lives are also marked by this sense of two steps forward and one step back, are they not? The kingdom of God is, but it's not yet in its fullness. So we struggle in faith to see. We need Jesus to explain, to spark our minds, to lead us in it. Part of the difficulty in seeing the kingdom relates to our third observation. The kingdom is now working out, being established in small and hidden ways. With the leaven Jesus describes in the mustard seed, which in popular imagination of the time was the, considered the smallest of all seeds, what they share in common is their size and their hidden nature. They're hidden within the garden ground, within the larger quantity of flour. When I was talking about the hidden small size there, I just about made a Jose Altuve joke uh, who hit the home run. Did I get that right? Is his name Jose? Is that right? Yeah. Did anyone watch that? Five, six, and he creamed that home run? It was amazing. Anyway. <laughs> the leaven, the mustard seed, they're inconsequential, and they work out of sight. In the verses just before our reading, Jesus has healed a woman who's hunched over, suffering from some kind of back or spinal issue for 18 years. And Luke uses the language of freedom and liberation, the language of God's kingdom to describe this healing. But the people around do not see this, do not grasp the significance of what Jesus has done. The Pharisees in particular, they quibble in their unbelief. They quibble with the timing of the healing rather than its significance. Their expectations for the kingdom looked different. They expected something more definitive, more complete. They had a specific agenda that they expected the kingdom to conform to. So they can't see the reality right before their faces because it's small and hidden. Among lowly and anonymous, it's mixed. It looks like service instead of victory. 
This is true even of Jesus' allies. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist, the man who is first one to publicly name Jesus for who he is, sends word to Jesus and asks, are, are you the one or should we expect someone else to bring the kingdom? It's hard to see. The way of peace, the way of our fulfilled longings is smaller and less conspicuous than we might have expected. As an inaugurated but not fulfilled kingdom, the immediate outcome, the immediate reality is more mixed. The way of this kingdom brought in by a suffering servant doesn't look like the victory we expect. It's humbler and more hidden. In the coming year in this country, we are about to enter an election season, one that has every indication of being fraught, divisive, contentious. And the stakes of who is and who is not president are real. But billions of dollars will be spent on getting you to pay attention and on getting you to believe, perhaps, that everything hangs in the balance, that the fulfillment of your hopes and longings, your desires for a safer and more secure world are bound up with this or that candidate. There'll be lights, there'll be sound bites, there'll be a grand stage. But the kingdom of God is the stuff of mustard seeds and leaven. And in hidden and seemingly inconsequential ways, through November of 2020, perhaps smaller and less significant than we expect, God will be setting things aright, quietly cultivating wholeness, bringing good news to bear. Again, this extends to our own lives where so many of us have unfulfilled longings and desires for different work situations, for health and wholeness in our bodies, for different relationship circumstances, disappointments, where the reality of our own sin, repeated and stubbornly present after all these years, remains a stain, such that we wonder about the working out of God in our lives. The testimony of Jesus about the kingdom of God is that Real as such disappointments may be, even here and now in our lives, in the midst of us, his kingdom, his goodness, the way things ought to be is coming to fruition, is taking root. This year we've talked about how pressing into our core value of transformation is one of our goals. And the work of transformation, the work of becoming Christ-like, is often invisible, is often inconsequential seeming. It's small and hidden. I was thinking about that famous quote from The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway, and the character Mike Campbell is asked, how did you go bankrupt? And he goes, two ways, gradually and suddenly. <laughs> gradually and all of a sudden. You invert that a little bit, and the kingdom, the kingdom comes gradually and suddenly, and all of a sudden, there's a tree there. All of a sudden, there's Christ-like character. All of a sudden, there's virtue that's gradually been cultivated. This reality that it's hidden and small and it's working out leads to the fourth observation. The kingdom of God is inevitable. In addition to their small and hidden quality, the mustard seed, the leaven, share the reality that once hidden, once placed or planted, they inexorably work out in natural progression. The grain of seed uninterrupted becomes the tree in which the birds find shade and shelter. The leaven, by its own power, works through three shares of flour, some 50 pounds of flour, until it is all leavened. As Nick mentioned last week, the picture of leaven in Scripture is often negative. It's this picture of contamination contagiously spreading. 
The Reformed doctrine of total depravity speaks of sin in these terms, describing how the whole human person is impacted by the fall, by sin, in the way that pristine water might be wholly contaminated, discolored by a single drop of ink. Flipped on its head, this image, as Jesus used it here, is a description not of contamination, but permeation, diffusion. Think of a fragrance sprayed inexorably filling the vacuum of empty space in a room. We might say inadequately in Jesus, the kingdom of God is concentrated in its purest and most potent form, embodied in him. And through him, that kingdom, that fragrant reign of God's goodness and grace, the way things ought to be, is now diffusing through all creation leading to the full permeation of of God's creation with his purpose and plans. Jesus will be satisfied and earth and heaven made one. So don't lose heart. Don't be distracted. Don't be afraid. The kingdom Jesus announces and inaugurates in his own life inevitably is coming to completion. Whatever happens next year, whatever our faults and failures, whatever the circumstances of life, the seed has been planted, the leaven hidden, and the kingdom that is, is the kingdom that will be inevitable. Our fifth and and final observation relates to the person of Jesus. Jesus is at the center of the kingdom. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus is in standard kind of rabbinic teacher mode here, teaching and describing with authority on a topic over which he has mastery. He is the one who says what the kingdom is like. He is the one who describes and defines the rule of God. He translates it for us. Jesus speaks for the kingdom because he stands at its center. We have these longings, these desires. We have these visions and dreams of the way things ought to be. We feel and express these longings in all kinds of ways, conditioned by our backgrounds, our cultural context. Maybe Big Rock Candy Mountain speaks to you or the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins. Maybe it's something totally different. And the promise of Scripture, the Christian faith, is that our deepest needs are met in the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Christ brings. The longings for a better world are not simply wishes upon a star, but rooted in a reality that is concrete and inevitable for which we were made. But the longings and desires I have, shaped as they are by my experiences, by my culture, my background, they're broken. They're fragmented. They fall short of the reality of God's kingdom. They're incomplete at best. Perhaps, as in the case of the Pharisees who who saw the kingdom through the lens of their own agenda, they're even distorted in need of correction. It is in the person and teaching of Jesus that we clearly, most clearly, see, hear, taste what the kingdom of God is like. In him and his perspective, the kingdom is distilled and embodied. It's to him that our longings, our visions, can be submitted He's at the center. There's a a luxury condominium tower going up in downtown Austin, or maybe it's open now. It's appropriately titled The Independent. And the kind of tagline for it is, declare yourself home. 
And there's a place for that. We, we all have this human need for a place that we can make our own, a place of shelter and safety. The implication of it is, is you can buy it, right? Like you can buy this place of home. But how much better to be welcomed home? How much better to be embraced and brought home? That involves submission. It involves laying aside, giving over my expectations, my standards, submitting them to the one who welcomes me. But how much better to receive hospitality, to enter into the, the rain, the thing that I long after, even if it means sacrificing my own agenda, giving it over, submitting it, naming it even to the one who's at the center. You see, Jesus is at the center of the kingdom because in a way, he ultimately is the seed. He is the seed that falls to the ground, hidden, seemingly insignificant, dying to give birth to God's expansive, hospitable, good, true, just, peaceful, abundant, inevitable reign. Jesus in his human life is the seed that's fallen to earth, that in his death and burial is hidden for three days before the shoots of God's kingdom are seen in his resurrected body. If you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, look and listen to Jesus. If you hunger for a taste of the way things ought to be, come to him. If you long after the way things will be inevitably, by God's grace and power, receive Christ. He's the grain of wheat, the mustard seed, the leaven the one that bears much fruit, that becomes the tree in which the birds find their home, that even now is giving rise to something new and good. In him the kingdom of God is and will be. Amen. In the front of your bulletin, you have a, a quote there from Eugene Peterson, his book, The Contemplative Pastor. We're going to take a minute of silence and we have an, an image by an artist from Kazakhstan, of all places, of the tree with the birds of the air. I invite you just to kind of be still and listen, perceive whatever the Spirit might be saying and doing in our midst. But this quote fits in because an implication of what I've been saying is that we don't bring the kingdom of God. We don't make it happen. The call is not that we would bring the kingdom to bear. The task is not that we get out there and do more work with more effort. The task is noticing, noticing in joyful expectation where God is working, how his kingdom is coming to fruition, and faithfully participating in God's inevitable kingdom. So that quote I invite you to consider is about noticing, noticing where he's working out his kingdom. I'll take a minute in silence. Let's close in prayer with these lyrics from another song that looks forward to the fullness of God's kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. People in realms of every tongue will dwell in his love with sweetest song. And infant voices shall proclaim their early blessings on his name. Blessings abound wherever he reigns. The prisoner leaps to lose their chains, the weary find eternal rest, and all the sons of want are blessed. 
where he displays his healing power. Death and the curse are known no more. In him, the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. Great God, whose universal sway the known and unknown worlds obey, now give the kingdom to thy son. Extend his power, exalt his throne. The scepter well becomes his hands. All heaven submits to his commands. His justice shall avenge the poor and pride and rage prevail no more. With power he vindicates the just, he treads the oppressor in the dust. His worship and his fear shall last till hours and years and time be past. As rain on meadows newly mown, so shall he send his influence down. His grace on fainting souls distill like heavenly dew on thirsty hills. The unbelieving lands that lie beneath the shades of overspreading death revive at his first dawning light and deserts blossom at the sight. The saints shall flourish in his days, dressed in robes of joy and praise. Peace like a river from his throne shall flow to nations yet unknown. Amen.